Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, data is the commodity. You're just the product. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. As President-elect Joe Biden is about to be sworn in, I thought it'd be a good idea to have a look at the legacy of Donald Trump over the last four years. And so I'm joined by author David Nywer, who wrote the fantastic book Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories That Are Killing Us. And he also wrote the book Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. It seemed appropriate to have a chat with David today about the terrible events of the 6th of January in which violent Trump supporters stormed the US Capitol building. And we take a look at what those events could mean for the future as President-elect Joe Biden is sworn in as President of the United States. Will these events be the beginning of the end of the far right? Or will it mean continued violence in the long run? And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll get early access to episodes and transcripts. Also, if you're a fan of spy films, please do check out my spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which is available on Amazon and iTunes. Just type in the dry cleaner film and you should find it. If you don't put the word film in, you might find something else. I've included a link to the trailer in the show notes below. We also have some podcast merchandise. So you can now walk around with secrets and spies, cups, coasters, t-shirts and tote bags, which is really handy if you're trying to save plastic on your weekly shop. If you find what David has to say very interesting today, don't forget to check out his books and I'll leave the links in the show notes below. Without further ado, let's begin. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. For the benefit of new listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience? Sure. Well, I'm I'm an old newsman. I came up in newspapers mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest, mostly in Idaho and Montana. And... Uh, in the first uh, first few years of my work, I was directly involved in having to cover uh, far-right extremists because we had an outfit called the Aryan Nations that moved into northern Idaho in the late 1970s when I was happened to be the very young editor of a newspaper there in the panhandle. And so I've had a lot of exposure to right-wing extremists and covering them. Uh, really since the late 70s. And uh, in the 90s, I began reporting on, as a freelance writer, I began reporting on um, the growth of this movement we called the militia movement or patriot movement 
Um, and then it kind of exploded in Oklahoma City in 1995, and suddenly I found myself an expert in <laughs> right-wing extremists because yeah. I had been one of the only reporters who had gone out and talked to these guys. Now, keep in mind, I had been mainly an environmental reporter up to that point, uh, or at least that was what the field I was working in at the time I was reporting on them because I was doing it as an anti-environmental backlash story. And uh, so I... Uh, but uh, after Oklahoma City, you know, I decided uh, I was uh, convinced to really make it a, a full-time uh, beat, you know, a dedicated beat that, that I could focus on and build uh, build the kind of institutional knowledge that I think that you need to have uh, when properly covering this kind of stuff. So, so I've been doing that really for yeah since '95. So what, uh, 25 years. Uh, as a dedicated beat. And, um, yeah, I wrote for the Southern Poverty Law Center from 2013 to 19 and then went to work at Daily Coast in 2019. And, uh, I'm working there. It's been, it's been actually a nice shift because, uh, uh SPLC, um, it was pretty, it was kind of limiting for me because I still want to write about the environment. <laughs> so, so Daily Coast lets me write a few environmental stories, but uh, yeah, they mostly hired me for my uh, expertise in right-wing extremism. So the events of the 6th of January, um, as I was just saying to you before we started, uh, when I watched uh, things unfold, I thought the first person I want to speak to is you. Um, <laughs> so so uh, what are your thoughts on the 6th of January attack on the Capitol? Is what you saw surprising, or was it something that you think's been building for a while? Well, uh, Chris, and mm. you know, you would know, of course, that that I've been arguing all along that this has been building for thirty years. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, no, I, I in fact wrote previews uh, about the, this event, and uh, the morning of the sixth, I put out a story or published a story saying that among the things that they were talking about. Uh, and that was likely to happen today was an invasion of the Capitol. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was, um, I mean, we, I did previews for this event and was warning people for a long time that something bad was going to happen, uh, pretty soon. And, uh, yeah, so it's not a surprise at all. Uh, and honestly, my view of those events was that, this was really, it was really the apotheosis of a, a, a couple of trends that we've been seeing for a while. One of them is, of course, the uh, significant expansion of the uh, numbers of people who are uh, drawn into right-wing extremist belief mm. systems. Mm. And this has been going on, and this is, of course, there are multiple factions there, but... Um, the larger universe, which you know, I called uh, uh, Alt America in in my book, Alt America, is this alternative universe of conspiracy theories and um, alternative facts that they have created for themselves. And uh, you know, there's a lot of different zones in that universe. Uh, there's the QAnon zone and the Proud Boys zone and the the uh, uh, all the various uh, uh, white nationalist belief systems that that all sort of intercommingle, 
but they also sort of occupy different parts of that universe. And, uh, yeah, we really saw them come together under Trump. I mean, one of the things we definitely saw in the last two months of the election Mm. campaign was this coalescence of uh, right-wing extremists with uh, uh, ostensibly mainstream Republicans. Mm. Um, Particularly, I'm thinking of uh, these Trump train events uh, that we had throughout the country where people would get in their pickups and their uh with their trump flags oh, and their yes. gadsden flags and american flags mm-hmm. and form these long caravans and and drive through mostly urban liberal cities uh demonstrating their love of trump and at the you know at these events and particularly you know they gather in big parking lots beforehand and have a bunch of speeches with each other we were seeing you know really massive participation in these events by proud boys and militia types three percenters and those kinds of folks and QAnon folks uh, right there alongside all these, you know, regular sort of lifelong Republican dedicated Trump fans. And um, so so really we were just seeing the, the spread of this extremism right into the embrace of, um, you know, an official campaign. And it, you know, started culminating in things like, uh, remember the incident where the Trump train tried to drive a Biden-Harris campaign yes, bus? Yes, I do remember that, yeah. Texas. Uh, yeah. That was, I think, really our first indication that, yeah, these folks weren't playing around and that they were going to be really engaging in acts of intimidation and, and terrorism. And, you know, very threatening behavior and ultimately uh, acts of insurrection, right? And, and I got to tell you, I mean, having been somebody who was covering the, the militia movement in the 90s and and then the Tea Party movement uh, during the Obama years, uh, this kind of rhetoric, this sort of seditionist rhetoric of talking about overthrowing the government and hanging uh, government officials and and um, assassinating politicians and uh, engaging in a civil war against their liberal neighbors um, has been floating around a really long time. Uh, it's But it really has gained a kind of... Um, uh, terminal velocity at this point, and uh, and that's what we were seeing on on January sixth, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not great to put it this way, but it kind of seemed like the logical conclusion of that kind of rhetoric, really. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, eventually they're gonna. I mean, if they obviously believe, eventually they're gonna. Some of them are gonna act on it, mm. and especially when they're being encouraged to do so by the president of the United States. Mm. Mm. Well, what can you tell us about, because a picture is sort of forming now, um, a clearer picture, but what can you tell us about the sort of various groups who have been found to be involved in the attack? It sort of appears to be a real potpourri of different groups. Well, uh, probably the, the one that's most salient right now is the Oath Keepers, which is one of these uh, far-right patriot militia groups that specializes primarily in recruiting and organizing uh, veterans, uh, military veterans, and law enforcement officers. And um, I mean, the name refers to, you know, keeping your oath to the Constitution, right? 
that you take when you're a law enforcement officer in the United States and when you're a military in the United States. And the um, it, this is part of the sort of mythology that the these extremists have built up around themselves. They do call themselves patriots yeah. and constitutionalists. Mm. But, of course, those names are actually travesties of of what they claim to represent because, uh, as far as the patriots go, honestly, having been hung out with them a great deal, I can tell you, you've never heard a more seditionist lot in your life. <laughs> you know, they are, they just, I mean, this is why, why I say that this rhetoric of sedition has been around for a very long time and has been tolerated sort of under the guise of, you know, First Amendment protection of free speech. But there are, in fact, laws against all these things. You know, it's it's actually illegal. to It's, a, it's, it's a breaking the federal law to threaten to kill uh, any federal official, and particularly including the president or vice president or speaker of the house. It's against the law to, to openly talk about uh, overthrowing the current form of government and replacing it with another, uh, especially if you are doing it in tandem uh, with paramilitary activities, you know, preparing basically is essentially assembling a, 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 uh, a, for, a force to be able to, to use force. And that's when sedition laws really get their teeth. And that's why they're actually now charging some of these folks with yeah. sedition. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's always been illegal to share bomb making plans on the internet and they've been doing this kind of stuff for yeah. years. And it's finally, you know, it, it, now we're starting to realize, Oh, it's not just hot talk. It's not just people going off. These people actually mean what they're saying. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because a lot of people do dismiss it as people just blowing off steam, and because it's on the internet, it's somehow yeah. not real. You know? Yeah, that it's just oh, he's just being ironic, or you know, he's just mad. Don't don't take it seriously. Of course, he's not going to actually invade the capital. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there, there's been a lot of this going around and, um, for a long time. And, uh, now we're finally realizing that we need to take it seriously, which is good. I mean, I, I've been saying we need to take it seriously for 30 years, but <laughs> <laughs> better late than never. <laughs> glad, glad they're catching up. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, and, and, um, you know, there was, there's been some reports coming out of, um, you know, people who, who actually wanted to kidnap and execute both senators, lawmakers and Vice President Mike Pence. And I've seen video footage of people with walkie-talkies looking, you know, all dressed up and they've got um, zip ties or something and somebody erected a... The gallows. They were chanting, hang Mike Pence yeah. as they entered the Capitol. Yeah. Um and yeah, they were clearly. You can see from the videos that they were uh, really trying hard to seek out very specific mm, mm. Uh, uh, lawmakers, particularly Pelosi and Pence. Yeah, and one one um, person I've forgotten her name. Um, she sort of on the internet they call her kind of like the QAnon senator who was tweeting out where Nancy Pelosi's location was all the time. Lauren Bober, uh, the freshly elected. Uh, uh, QAnon congressman from Colorado. Yeah, yeah I think she's actually uh, going to be facing some real legal issues because she apparently was also the person who was uh, giving uh, reconnaissance mm. tours the day before. Mm. 
um, and and helping some of these extremists uh, sort of figure out their way around the inside of the capital. Wow. And have they have they actually linked people from that earlier tour to the events the following day yet, or are they still? Yeah, sort of, yeah. So I, I think there's a there's a I think a good likelihood that there are going to be members of Congress uh, getting frog marched off to mm. prison. Mm. And then, frankly, there should be. Yeah. I mean, from what we saw, uh, there is very clearly that this was uh, coordinated and organized. Um, and we need to find out who was involved in yeah. that. Yeah, definitely. And it seemed, and again, like there's, there was, um, there's been quite a range of people who, who've been involved in that because you've had um, some police officers and military people have been found to have been involved. Um, you kind of get yes. the, I don't know what to call them really. And that's, and that's where, this is where the Oath Keepers mm, come in, mm. by the way, uh, because they have recruited a lot of people who are actually active members of police departments and military. And yeah. so I would not be surprised. Uh, we do know that it was a group of Oath Keepers that made their way through the crowd and were, uh, played a key role in breaking down that police barrier. Um, and these were guys, if you see the video, you, you can see that they were all trained and engaging in trained behavior using hand signals and coordinated. Uh, these guys, these are clearly people with military training. And, um, and yeah, so that's, uh, and, so the the FBI is focusing a lot of its investigation right now on the Oath Keepers. Now, as it happened in the months leading up to all this, you know, um, uh, the Oath Keepers uh, were kicked off of Twitter for advocating for a civil war, and this after the uh, um, the right wing Patriot Prayer guy was shot by the anti fascists in Portland. Um, Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, uh, went on this long rant and just saying, it's on now, it's a civil war. And he actually, at the there was a December 15th uh, pro-Trump event uh, called uh, the Million MAGA March. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, at which Rhodes was one of the speakers, and he was urging Trump to... Um, activate to use the uh, invoke the insurrection yeah, act yeah i saw a bit of that on Twitter. and declare martial law yeah and the funny thing is if you know the history of the oath keepers they originated in 2008 and 2009 when they were claiming that democrats were going to be uh, uh trying to you know basically the right-wing fear was that the democrats were going to be uh, taking away everybody's guns and rounding up people and putting them in concentration camps and that was what the Oath Keepers were all about. They were initially, you know, all about, oh, we're trying to stave off martial law. They were claiming that Obama was going to invoke martial law. Oh, yeah, these so-called FEMA camps, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so by the end of, of course, mm. now now that the loop came around, now they're pro-martial mm. law, you mm. know? And, and this is what I mean about how there's everything's a travesty on the far right of what they claim to be, what they say mm, they are, mm. but they really uh, essential to sort of the right-wing extremist uh, mindset is this uh, self-conception of being heroes, mm. of being heroic mythology, mm. and they build up this heroic mythology around yeah. themselves. So they call themselves patriots and constitutionalists and, oh, we're defending the Constitution and we're going to save America. And uh, 
you know, I mean, and of course, this is you find this all across the board in all these various factions. Uh, the uh, QAnon believers, the which is another faction that was out there. Um, these are the this is that authoritarian conspiracy cult that believes, you know, that the Democratic uh, leaders in Hollywood are uh, are secretly a bunch of um, uh, global pe- globalist pedophilia. Yeah, they, they seem to be really obsessed with um, pedophilia and sex crimes, strangely, don't they? It seems to be a bit of a feature of the far right and, uh, and QAnon and people. Right. And and so they are, you know, they're out to save the children. You know, they're they're going to save America from this evil gang of pedophiles mm. that is kidnapping children away and storing them in tunnel and sucking out their blood to, so they can harvest the adrenochrome and drink the adrenochrome so they can live yeah. longer. And that links in with the because there's a famous anti-Semitic blood libel, isn't there? That kind of um, links into that theory. Yes, yes. Oh, there's all kinds of undertones, not just blood libel, but of course the whole. Protocols of the Seven Elders yeah. of Zion, with the sort of the globalism theories. So yeah, so there's there's those folks, and then of course there's also the Proud Boys, who are basically Trump's brown shirt army. I mean that's fundamentally that's functionally the role they play. Mm-hmm. They are uh, uh, street thugs who go out to uh, beat up leftists, and their whole their whole rise on debt is to create a, a narrative uh, about the violent left. And, you know, th- they're really good at, at saying, oh, yeah, we just happened to go have a peaceful demonstration, uh, a peaceful rally in these urban liberal centers, and we got attacked by these leftists, right? But the, I've hung out with these yeah. guys, and they're all yeah. there so that they can get in fights, so they can go brawl, and, and I want to punch some Antifa. Yeah, you know? a bit like the football hooligan problem we had in the, the 90s here. I don't know. I mean, it was predates that too, yeah. but it seemed to reach a massive peak in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and and yeah. football was kind of not the real reason. It was just an ex- um, the excuse that these groups used to go out and beat each other up at weekends. And there's a very good film uh, with Gary Oldman called The Firm that kind of looks at that. But uh, yeah, yeah, similar kind of thing, isn't it? Yes, except it's political. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And and um, so the Proud Boys keep and and obviously the far right and the QAnon like, keep going on about this um, this horrible mysterious leftist group known as Antifa who apparently uh, are so Machiavellian that they somehow managed to engineer this entire thing. Um, can you talk yeah. about Antifa, yeah. the myth of Antifa? <laughs> well, interestingly, I mean, if you think about it, Chris, I don't think anybody in America or Europe had heard the word Antifa prior to about. Uh, late 2017 yeah very few very few people had even heard the term um and suddenly within about a year's time they were this global existential threat to america (laughs) right they're very quick aren't they (laughs) not many startups that successful in their first year yeah (laughs) i i did a piece for daily coast uh discussing um you know the actual uh origins of that whole narrative and it it all started in conspiracy theories around the time of trump's inauguration in 2017 this theory cropped up particularly among the alex jones quadrant Mm. and Mm. elsewhere claiming that far leftists and communists under the antifa banner were organizing to try to prevent trump from uh 
actually taking the oath of office and were plotting to uh, attack the inauguration or do some kind of thing where they would basically take over America. And it was like a, sort of a red dawn mm. <laughs> conspiracy mm. theory, you know, that, that these communists were secretly going to overthrow America in one swell swoop by stopping Donald Trump from taking office. Now, this theory didn't really spread into the mainstream much, but it was very active in uh, the conspiracist world. And it got revived uh, later that November uh, of the same year uh, with this uh, uh, claim that, uh, again, there was, there was a plot in November to have a coup to uh, displace Trump and replace him, and that it was being led by Antifa, right? Well, it, that actually gained more traction and uh, was spread throughout mainstream right-wing media, particularly Fox News, and discussed uh, by <laughs> at these supposedly mainstream channels, in large part, I think, because they that took place after Charlottesville. And Charlottesville was really the event where most Americans became aware of the existence of Antifa uh, because they were out there in the streets. And interestingly, one of the things that came out of Charlottesville was that we saw, instead of any kind of condemnation of white nationalists or white supremacists or, you know, the kind of violence that they brought, uh, we saw in places like Fox News just this sort of sustained attack on Antifa as being a problem in Charlottesville rather than white supremacists and neo-Nazis, which, you know, of course, fit in nicely with uh, Trump's, uh, there were some very fine people on both sides. Yes, there. yes. <laughs> but over the next, so I, I start, I did this thing where I tracked, you know, for what stories started appearing when uh, about Antifa. And it was really after that, that November uh, conspiracy that never, of course, occurred that we started really seeing right-wing media pick up this storyline that Antifa, it was this uh, hor horrific uh, existential threat to, to the United States. And it, it all, again, all had these uh, origins in completely cockamamie conspiracy theories. But um, once Fox News picked up that ball and ran with it, then it's really spread widely. And, uh, and of course, Donald Trump picked it up and began denouncing Antifa, and then uh, the rest was history. Mm -hmm. So the reality is, now I, I've been co I covered, I think, 18 of these uh, events involving conflicts between Proud Boys and a group called Patriot Prayer that was based here in the mm -hmm. Northwest um, that would organize these far-right street demonstrations in the rural urban centers, particularly Portland, Oregon, uh, Berkeley, California, and uh, Seattle. Um, and I, like I said, at Seattle area, they, they held a couple of events down in the state capitol in Olympia mm -hmm. as well. At all of these events, you know, the it was pretty remarkable to see that very few, in fact, uh, it was really hard to find anyone uh, from Portland at on the Proud Boys side in these in these events, they were all guys who lived in 
uh, rural parts of the state and, and rural Washington as well, or at least ex-urban areas. Uh, some of the few of them lived in suburbs, but none of them actually lived in Portland. You know, the, they were coming to Portland because they wanted to beat up people from Portland. And they were coming armored. They were coming with helmets, coming with sticks. Uh, some of them actually came with guns, but uh, Portland has pretty strict laws about uh, open carry. So they couldn't actually do the open carry in, in Portland. But a couple of their other events where open carry is permitted, I did see plenty of guns. And, um, and of course, they probably all had them in their cars anyway. So, um, so, so yeah, and... Uh, but uniformly, uh, not only that, my experience with, uh, and I, I will admit, I mostly hung out on the right wing side so I could hear what they were saying and what they were talking about. But I did cover, I did spend some time with the anti-fascist mm -hmm. side and listen to them. And I got to tell you, my main impression of them was that the vast majority of them were, you know, uh, people like me, <laughs> that they're just ordinary citizens of the liberal bent to uh, want to stand up to this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and and understand that it's toxic. There are, there is a minority faction within the anti-fascists of black bloc folks do sometimes engage in irresponsible behavior. Uh, but but at the same time, they, they also, are, I mean, they're, main focus is to try to prevent these proto-fascists from inflicting violence on their communities. And um, so most of the times that I saw anti-fascists engaged in violence, it was primarily defensive. But uh, at the same time, we also saw that the police, the law enforcement that was out to sort of handle these events was very clearly heavily uh bias towards the Proud Boys side and and, and against the anti-fascists. They engaged in very aggressive yeah. tactics yeah. against the anti-fascists yeah. in a fair amount of brutality. Can we touch on law enforcement for a minute? Because um sure. we briefly we briefly mentioned it before, but um you know there's been a lot of discussion um about far right infiltration of law enforcement and the military. How I suppose how real a threat is that, um, and how how deep do you think it is, and and um, I suppose is there a way out of that? Yeah, well, there has there is a way out that requires that is a dedicated focus, but yes, it is a very real problem. It's fairly pervasive, particularly I I think cops uh, are very mm. uh, already have a very uh, conservative culture, uh, and, and this has been something that's grown somewhat separate from all this activity um, because I think police in general have become increasingly uh, conservative, mm. right-wing leaning over the last 20 years. Is there anything in particular that kind of um, in that time period you think caused that? Fox News, you know? And one of the things that, that does cause it is the fact that lichens in such cities as Seattle and Portland, cost of living there has gone up mm. tremendously. And uh, so as a result, uh, very few of the police officers who uh, are on the beat in those cities uh, can actually afford to live there. Yeah. Uh, most of them live in these suburbs and exurbs. Mm, so they're not part of the community they're policing. So That's right. That's right. And, and we've certainly seen a tremendous growth of um, 
uh, very contemptuous attitudes towards the very people that they're supposed to be serving and protecting among mm. these police officers, particularly uh, as we've seen uh, expressed through their unions. Mm. Unions in particular are very, are just noxiously right-wing and very hateful towards towards liberals. And, and my question has always been, well, how, how can you have... How can you have a police force that has nothing but contempt for the police people they're supposed to be protecting? You know, uh, I don't. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. We're supposed to believe crime fictions. It Harry Bosch. He has a phrase about um, everybody matters or nobody does or something like that. Everybody should matter, shouldn't they? Yes. The law enforcement picture in the states is different to the UK, and I've always been um, mainly again through just things i've watched like you've got you've got a uh you have like sheriffs you have um state police you have city police um i think you even have highway patrols um and then obviously you've got the federal um authorities like the fbi and, sure. and so on highway patrol is almost always state police by the way is it yeah are there any particular sections of that kind of massive law enforcement picture that tend to be more prone to this or yeah. is it just a kind of over wide thing sheriff's departments in particular have been really vulnerable to this kind of recruitment yeah. there's an outfit called the constitutionalist sheriffs and peace officers association run by a game richard mack uh that is they're straight up constitutionalists they they uh they're uh, you know they he mack was closely associated with the clive and bundy folks yeah and uh, they basically preached that uh, sheriffs, the county sheriff is actually the highest law in the land, and that the sheriff is able to overrule and refuse to enforce and ignore federal laws and uh, federal law enforcement, that, the, that any FBI agent who comes into a county is actually now under the command of that county sheriff, right? Um, and, that's, and that's what they argue. And, well, there's a uh, there's a ton of sheriffs out there that that buy into this stuff. Uh, we did a piece when I was working for the SPL, SPLC called "Line in the Sand" that we, we tried to survey the nation's sheriffs to see how many of them were participating in this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And we couldn't get a firm number mainly because so many sheriffs refused to participate. But I think that uh, the the indications were that it's a pretty substantial number of cops that are involved in this, or, or sheriffs and their deputies who are in, engaged in this stuff. And, you know, this bleeds right over into the same problem we have with uh, city police officers joining the Oath Keepers and, uh, you know, and military veterans joining the Oath Keepers. Um so and and we've actually seen some police officers joining the Proud Boys, you know. So, um, but yeah, there there was a reason that there was a large number of uh, police officers who were among the people arrested uh, for uh, invading the Capitol because. Mm. They were all there at the behest of people like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Yeah, and um, is there any? Well, has there been any sort of um, evidence or suggestion, for the right word there, um, that um, like federal organizations like the FBI, um, Homeland Security, and those kind of people have problems with that? I think I get the impression Homeland Security seems to be vulnerable to that mindset. But uh, Yeah, uh, FBI has actually done a great job the past year mm. of really mm. cracking down, particularly on neo-Nazis and, and 
um, you know, we had the base arrests and Adam Waffen SS arrests. Um, so, and, uh, you know, they arrested that gang of militiamen in Michigan as well. So, uh, no, actually, the FBI, I, I got to just tip my hat to them. I think they've been doing a pretty good job of being uh, recognizing finally this threat. I mean, they've been mm-hmm. ignoring it for the previous 20, but hey, you know. They got there in the end. <laughs> it took a long time to get here, but uh, glad you're here now, you know, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I think actually I, I tip my hat to Chris Ray, the director of the FBI. He was to tremendous pressure from Trump to try to claim that, you know, Trump wanted to claim that the summer riots and the, the violence around him was all caused by Antifa and that the Antifa was the biggest threat, terrorist threat America faced. And Chris Way, Ray went before Congress and said, no, uh, Antifa is not really a, uh, an organization. It's a movement and we can't de- designate them a terrorist group and be really our far and away our greatest threat is uh, is white supremacists and white nationalists yeah. and yeah. trump wanted to fire him for it but he said this in september or something like that august and september and uh, you know in the middle of the campaign and he knew it would really fuck the campaign up if he if he tried to fire the fbi director that summer so he just kind of wrote it out but as you may you know there was a lot of talk that you know Trump really wanted to fire Chris Ray um, mm. uh, before the end of the year, mm. in large part because he had made him look bad on the whole Antifa question. So, so I, I'll, I'll give my hat to to the FBI now. The DHS um, has uh, tried to reform itself internally. The problem is it's been it's had these uh, Trump appointees running the show at the top. And frankly, these guys were too incompetent to uh, cause too many problems. But um, I don't think DHS was in a position or was able to be very aggressive about it. Um, and uh, hopefully they will be in uh, in the coming years. Because I can tell you this, we're going to have at least four years of uh, ongoing insurgency from the radical right. I mean, that, that was the main message we got from January 6th, actually, yeah, that we're going to have yeah. at least four years of this. We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, I just want to ask you one last question about uh, law enforcement military. What was the situation with the far right in the military? Well, we've had, you know, uh, this is an ongoing thing. I'm actually, I'm actually working on a story. I can't talk about too much right now involving no, it's fine. Someone who's uh, uh, in a very sensitive position in a really important. Uh, military base uh, who is uh, who's been spending the last few years uh, uh, advocating for the boogaloo, you know, and talking about the boogaloo and telling people how to, which is the you know the boogaloo is the the right wing plan for a civil war that destroys uh, the old old order and mm. brings about the uh, brings about whatever you, <laughs> they have in mind, um, but. Um, um, yeah, so there, I would say, um, it, you know, and it's the problem with the military. There's two problems with the military. Obviously, if somebody is in the military and is able to sabotage operations or to share uh, confidential information with our enemies, uh, 
that sort of thing. Um, I think that uh, that's, uh, you know, that the really security risks, I think that that's always a problem because that's something that, that, you know, is potentially there. And that's why, for instance, they, they are going through the numbers, the members of the National Guard who are going to be at the inauguration. Well, this is on my mind because as we speak right now, yeah. you've got the National Guard uh, in Washington, D.C. at the moment. And, um, you know, it's sort of, if you start to think about fire infiltration, is somebody going to go wild with their firearm? You know? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like mm. we saw with uh, uh, Sadat, right? Sadat's yeah. assassination. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I assume, and I believe they have thought of this because I know that, I mean, actually, Tucker Carlson is all outraged right now because uh, because they, he, the National Guardsmen are, are uh, being uh, vetted for uh, whether or not mm. they, they're uh, right-wing extremists. And uh, yeah, he held a, did a segment on it last night saying that, you know, they're they're trying to destroy our our institutions and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, the Secretary of State of Texas, Greg Abbott, called it a huge insult to the members of the National Guard that they're being suspected of um, potential, you know, mm. <laughs> betrayal. But but the reality is that this is just uh, basic. Um, operational security that you have to do if you're going to have that ma- mm. that many members of, mm. Uh, mm. of the military out there, and we have had a, a significant problem with uh, yeah, I mean, the, there's a lot of folks in the military that are um, involved in this stuff. I mean, the only murder we had this summer of a, a law enforcement officer during those riots. Yeah, um, was one in Oakland who was shot and killed by a right-wing Boogaloo guy, yeah, uh, who yeah. actually happened to be a, a yeah. serving an active member of the Air Force, um, and he shot mm. and he shot and killed mm. a sheriff's deputy five days later when they came to try to arrest him for the the uh, the act in Oakland. That guy, that guy's name is Steve Carilla. He's standing waiting for trial right now. Yeah, and the lady who was shot by police in the Capitol was former Air Force, yes. and the guy with the zip ties, I think, was former Air Force as well. Yeah, yeah, huge numbers of people with uh, military backgrounds and engaged in this stuff. Yes. So, so, and, and that's that's when we get into the McVeigh factor, right? I mean, it's mm, mm, really lucky. Uh, I, we've been lucky through most of American history in that so many of our right wing extremists weren't, particularly the ones who were inclined to uh, acts of terrorism, haven't been terribly competent because very few of them actually have any kind of real training or understanding of the handling of material or firearms. They, they're, basically kind of self-taught amateurs for the most part. Yeah. Danger factor comes in when you get somebody who is radicalized this way, who actually does have that training. And the classic example of that is Timothy McVeigh, who had you know, gotten all kinds of good material training uh, during the Iraq war that basically enabled him to pull off the Oklahoma City bombing. Same with uh, Eric Rudolph, the uh, uh, Atlanta uh, Olympics pipe bomb or backpack. Mm. He was also a military veteran. Yeah. And so, yeah, one of the things that we have consistently seen is that some of the very worst acts have been uh, 
committed by people with actual experience and who are skilled at handling this kind of stuff. So th that means that the competence factor of these terrorists is, goes up significantly, and therefore the that they represent goes up as well. One last question on this theme of law enforcement. Sorry for the focus on it. I just no. find it fascinating. Has there been any case of anybody in the Secret Service with far-right leanings? For the most part, the Secret Service is a really buttoned-down agency, and and um, and really we don't know yeah. a whole lot about them. Uh, but and typically, their agents don't engage in um, po mm. politics mm. afterwards. But some of them do, and and in fact, uh, Dan Bongino, the big pro-Trump guy who, you know, he's part of Trump's inner circle, mm -hmm. and we see him on social media all the time, is, in fact, a former Secret Service agent who worked for George W. Bush. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, some of these guys, so some of them do get into politics, but, yeah, it, that's, a, that's a much murkier area. So, yeah, um, uh, my understanding is that they did, they went through and created a whole new team for Biden that uh, within the Secret Service that had nothing to do with any of Trump's detail. Yeah, I could imagine after all the coronavirus stuff and various other things the Secret Service have endured over four years, I would have thought that one agency would be very glad to see the end of the Trump administration. But <laughs> I, I think they privately probably are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I, I can't also help but imagine that some of those agents actually were supportive and, mm. and supportive. Mm, so, mm, mm, no, definitely. Have the events of 6th of January empowered or weakened the far right and their supporters, do you think? Well, I, I, I think it, it was both. Uh, I think it was a huge propaganda coup, and it told them that because, because it told them that, hey, we can make these fantasies come true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That we, we can actually uh, pull these things off, and we can, uh, this, this is um, something that, you know, we, don't just have to be talking about it. We can actually make mm. it happen. Mm. And and I think that that sense spread throughout the movement, however, and it actually kind of a, a sense of accomplishment within the first couple of days. But what we've seen since is that um, very much like Charlottesville, we've had this huge outbreak of uh, internal bickering, well, really internecine warfare within the radical right with all of them pointing fingers and accusing each others and taking credit and taking blame uh, for various aspects of the insurrection. And, um, and so we were supposed to have, you know, Sunday, we were supposed to have the million militia march mm. in, in downtown DC. It was supposed to be a million militiamen showing up, not a single one. Mm. Not one mm. showed up. It was a complete, I mean, it was beyond a complete bust. It was epic. And, and, and likewise, we were supposed to be seeing these demonstrations in various state capitals. The, the most we saw was just smatterings, handfuls of these guys showing up at the state capitals. So I would say that, it, it, that it, like Charlottesville, it also had a really disorienting and mm. uh, effect on mm. the movement. It's mm. basically scattered them. And also, uh, obviously, I think that the wave of arrests uh, that have followed yeah. after January 6th have tamped down a lot of that enthusiasm a lot. Well, I wondered, yeah. So we're going to go through a period mm. of internecine quarreling 
which mostly mm. I think is going to be is going to mean that we aren't going to see, um, you know, armed bands of men engaging in uh, uh, acts of terrorism mm. the way that they're planning to. Through we were seeing a fair amount of that in 2019 and 2020, uh, which is what the the arrests by the FBI of the base and Adamoff and represent and the, and the Michigan guys. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that's mainly because that's, there's been so much, uh, internecine quarreling going on, but I do think that, uh, we're, we are going to see really probably within a matter of a few weeks, um, a real spike in lone wolf terrorism. Yeah. Uh, especially once, uh, the reality sinks in that, Oh God, uh, this guy really is president. I mean, they've been telling themselves that Biden will never be president. He will never be inaugurated. Mm, mm. It's not going to happen. You know, and, and Trump will, you'll see Trump will write in and save the day at the last minute. Yeah. This is what they've been telling themselves for a long time. And then when after tomorrow happens and, or after, you know, the inauguration happens, which we hope happens, but <laughs> I, I'm pretty confident it will. I mean, I yeah. can tell you, DC is locked yeah. down yeah. right now. Yeah, but but they uh, I think that after the inauguration mm, and it sinks mm. in and and once Biden starts, uh, you know, uh, uh, rolling back the Trump legacy and repealing all this stuff that Trump did mm. and they start seeing, you know, his presidency become a reality as well as the destruction of Trumpism uh, that it's going to represent. Um, I think we're going to start seeing a real spike in lone wolf domestic terrorism, and eventually we will get back around to seeing uh, armed bands as well. Mm-hmm. I just fear for another Oklahoma-style event. That that, that definitely uh, worries me. Well, yeah. I mean, it only takes one or two of these guys mm. to cause This is something that everybody, you know, they kind of say, oh, well, you know. There's, there, there's, they're only a fringe. There's only a tiny handful. I, I don't think that that's true. I, I, I think they're larger than we think. But even so, even if it's just a tiny number of them, it only takes one or two to wreak a whole lot of havoc and hurt a lot of people and kill a lot of people and disrupt society in ways that we can't really even reckon with. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think? Um people will now take the kind of the far right more seriously. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do think that I do think I've, I've been gaining a pretty steady flow of <laughs> new followers oh, that's on good. Twitter <laughs> <laughs> since January 6th. I mean, I say I, I get close to, you know, probably a thousand a day. Yeah. So, wow. Wow. That's well yeah, done. Well done. Going, you know, I need to figure this out and, and so they're starting to turn to experts, uh, the people who actually know what how to address the problem. Uh, so, um, yeah, instead of the instead of listening to people, the people who've been telling us all these years, oh, it's 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 not really a problem. I mean, you still have people like. Uh, Glenn Greenwald running around and saying, oh, the problem isn't those fascist insurrectionists. The problem is the liberals who are trying to shut down President Trump. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I I don't – Glenn Greenwald's a mystery to me, but (laughs) (laughs) he really is. He really is. He's Yeah. Oh, there's 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 that whole faction out there of of people who are supposedly on the left mm. who are 
who constantly are poo-pooing and downplaying this issue and just saying, oh, you know, they just, um, they're just, um, <laughs> they're just hapless pawns. They're yeah. just people reacting out of, you know, uh, economic angst. And the real problem is neoliberal uh, economic policy that's impoverishing. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is a very it's been a very popular thing uh, for many years since 2015 in the UK and certainly since Trump um, and um, yeah and and it was I, I can't remember I can't remember the name because I'm really not a names person but Bernie Sanders former communications person has a podcast and they they um, had a uh, an episode with Noam Chomsky and basically he was telling, he was basically arguing for why everybody should vote for Biden because he felt it is one of the, you know, most sensible choices is to vote for Biden and get rid of Trump. And they were arguing with him saying, well, no, 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 we've got to defeat capitalism first before we can do anything. So really we need Trump. We need Trump because he, he will expose the flaws in capitalism. And I just, Honestly, I just don't understand this sort of burn the house down approach that seems to have become very popular on certain factions of the left, certainly, and on the right too, in, in their own way. Well, I I understand it. They're kind of they are frustrated by mm. the fact that um, establishment Democrats, middle of the road Democrats, very much mm. dug in, mm. and yes, mm. those Democrats and, and moderate liberals, they they don't play nicely with the left. Always, sometimes they do. I really think that. Biden's administration is going to be far more progressive than people think. A lot of that's going to have to do with uh, Kamala Harris, who is far more progressive than people give her credit for. And I think Biden is also very open to this because, frankly, the intransigence and radicalism of the Republican right in the last four, five, six years uh, has really created an opening for progressives that we haven't had before of saying, you know, these right-wing uh, people are just leading us down a path, and we need to take a different path. And the, and, and I think yeah. that those progressive paths uh, look pretty attractive to people like Biden. Uh, so, um, because they are they are constructive alternatives instead of reactionary <laughs> alternatives, uh, which is what I, you know. There was a lot of. Uh, during the Obama years, uh, is excellent a president as Obama was, he was very timid about um, pursuing really progressive policies, and particularly about uh, dealing with race and uh, right-wing extremism. Um, partly because uh, I think that he f was afraid to uh, the, of the consequences of taking them on, of a black president taking these things on. And maybe not unreasonably. Uh, it yeah. may have been, uh, yeah. There may have been some wisdom to that. But the yeah. result was that uh, we we dithered and we basically around for eight years uh, dealing with this, the growth of this problem. We basically pretended it wasn't happening. Uh, and um, we're paying for it now. So so, so I, I, I do think Biden's going to – I actually think Biden may get that. Um, we'll see, you know, um, all we can do is cross our fingers and hope they figure it out. Yeah, definitely. So as we record this, this is the eve of the inauguration. Um, so tomorrow should everything go according to plan, um, Trump should be leaving office at midday and, uh, president elect Joe Biden should be sworn in. Um, so sort of two key questions, I suppose, could you give us your thought on 
Trump's impact on America and the far right. And then the second question, which I can remind you of in a minute, um, is what are your hopes for a Biden administration and what should his administration do to tackle the rise of the far right? Very good questions, actually. Um, uh, my answer on Trump really is fairly simple and clear. I have said from the get-go that essentially Donald Trump uh, took the lid off the national lid uh, mm. when he was elected. And really, during, even during the campaign, he created this path where it became okay to be openly bigoted and to be a fucking jackass in public, <laughs> as we have mm. seen on multiple videos uh, distributed mm. social media since. But also, uh, it was, as we also saw in the first month of his presidency, when um, we saw this incredible spike in hate crimes, unlike anything we've ever seen. Over a thousand hate crimes in one month, which is just unbelievable numbers. And, and uh, around half of these people, when you examine the incidents, as, as I did, um, I actually tallied up all the, I went through the incidents one by one and tallied up the, the numbers of people who were either using Trump's name directly or engaging in his rhetoric while committing these hate crimes. And uh, it was 47% of them, which is really significant. So, I mean, really, I have a very simple way of putting it. Trump basically took the lid off the Pandora's box of our national lid. All of the demons came flying out. And what we are hoping for now is that at least with Biden being elected, we can put the lid back on, on that box. But those demons are out there, and we're going to be spending the next five to ten years dealing with them. Um, and we need to be ready for that. So, into the second question, what can Biden do to deal with this? Well, there are a number of things. One of the, thing, one of the things they should not do, which they are talking about, is create a, uh, a sort of 9-11 commission to, uh, to to examine the thing, and, and they're talking about you know uh, basically unleashing the CIA on on Americans and things. We've seen a lot of discussions of various approaches to how to do it. And they're all federal law enforcement heavy, and it's all about enabling sort of a police state uh, type approach. And and uh, it a won't work. Uh, and B is is just so wrongheaded; it would just t take us in completely the opposite direction we need to go. It kind of inadvertently feeds into those conspiracy theories because, as somebody put it quite well, um, the myth of the deep states now will become very real for some people. <laughs> I, I, I do think that there are things that the Trump or that the Biden administration can and should do, and these actually mm. play into play directly into some of the issues that we had over the summer involving uh, police brutality and, and police uh, treatment of black people. And this is we need to uh, uh, we need to actually have law enforcement be actively engaged in the work uh, of, of enforcing the laws we have on the books dealing with these people. We need to get our law enforcement culture to where it recognizes the threat and then it actually enforces the laws we already have that mm. will more than adequately 
get this problem under control. I mean, it, like I said, it's already illegal to be sharing bomb-making plans. Why those people aren't being instantly arrested for doing so is on the, is actually on our law enforcement. It's also actually against the law in all 50 states in the United States to form private armies, to form yeah. militias. These laws have been on the books since between around the 1890s and 1910 period is when a lot of those laws were passed. And they had to do with uh, the use of armed thugs, basically private armies, hired by robber barons to go attack labor organizers, right? But those those militias, those private armies that we are now being plagued with are, in fact, illegal. In every state in the Union, they're just allowed to, per, uh, allowed to persist because law enforcement turns a blind eye to them. We have mm. to stop turning a blind eye to them, and we won't be able to turn a blind eye to them until we get rid of all of these right-wing extremists who have infiltrated our law enforcement capacity now. So we need to clean up our law enforcement. We need to change their approach to how they enforce the law. And then we, and, and, and I think that we will, in the process of doing so, we'll also see a significant increase in um, better relations between minority communities and leftist communities mm. and mm. those police departments, because they'll recognize you know, I mean, there will be just naturally a shift. And so, yeah, I think we need to clean up our police departments. I need to, there needs to be a program aimed at, at cleaning them out. There needs to be a program aimed at uh, uh, providing them with um, the kind of training that they need, particularly hate crimes training is one of the real blank areas for most law enforcement uh, agencies in the country. Uh, because they do do a terrible job of enforcing hate crimes and dealing with hate crimes in their communities. And a lot of this has to do with those same crappy attitudes that they have about, oh, well, that's just, you know, a bunch of liberals trying to be politically correct type stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As somebody's written about hate crimes for a long time, I could tell you that, that law mm. enforcement's, uh, um, Deliberate ignorance is is really a, a, a major problem and has been for a long time. And it's one of the reasons, I mean, the, the biggest problem we have with hate crimes in America is that they are underreported. And yeah. the law enforcement agencies have play a huge role in that on multiple fronts. So, yeah, the uh, I think that um, a Biden administration shouldn't go about trying to pass a bunch of new laws and trying to uh, create uh, a federal des designation for domestic terrorism although I you know that that would I think that would be okay but the problem is that if they ever passed it and didn't put in the proper kind of safeguards for it um, for doing that then uh, the next time we have a President Trump that that law is going to be insanely abused because then he will have would have the room to actually designate antifa a terrorist organization so um, which fortunately he really didn't have and it's mainly because that legislation isn't there so I, I don't know that we want to be handing future trumps that that particular hammer you know. <laughs> I think really we should be dealing with uh, what are 
what the laws are in the books and and really the prioritization of this not just in law enforcement but also on at all levels of officialdom you know among politicians it has to be a pri- priority among the media it has to be a priority yeah. Um, yeah. it, just all aspects of our culture we need to actually take this seriously so yeah. we can we can look to biden to sort of lead the way but it's going to take all of us yeah yeah um another question just popped into my head so trump was banned from twitter recently and it's been found that since he's been banned misinformation has sort of um i think it's sort of dropped by about half or something like that on online i was just wondering what your thoughts are about the trump twitter ban because obviously a lot of people now saying it's a freedom of speech issue and now it's corporate censorship and all these other things, which I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, it's it's not censorship; it's mm. editorship. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, let's be clear: social media platforms are publishing platforms. Yes, uh, these guys are publishers. Yes, and they have made the editorial decision that they're not going to permit this kind of um, activity on their platform, mm. which is the right of every po- editor on the planet. And it, that that's so. It's not censorship; it's it's editing. Yeah, and. It's astute editing because um, there are obviously really toxic consequences for it. Interestingly, some of the people who are most prone to calling it censorship, cough, Glenn Greenwald, cough, are, are have themselves on other occasions objected loudly to actually even being edited themselves. Yes. Oh, especially Glenn Greenwald, yes. <laughs> that's, why, that's why he left The Intercept, because they tried to edit him. God forbid there's an editor as an online publication. Oh, yeah, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and then they call editing censorship. Uh, yeah. So, uh, being an old editor and having worked in this business for a long time, I just have to roll my eyes. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, the, uh, so the, the problem is, is so deplatforming like this is, is a very blunt instrument. And it's, can be effective. Um, it's it certainly, I mean, the biggest thing about it is that as we saw with post uh, Trump's ban, it shuts off the spigot of disinformation and stops its flow and spread so or flow and spread so easily mm. um, that uh, and and the recruitment that goes with it um, drops dramatically. So uh, I think that it can be useful, but I, it's it's not. It's not effective in actually defeating the problem because mm. what these folks do, what, I mean, the real reason or one of the reasons that the reduction in misinformation was that simultaneous with Trump's ban was also the deep, you know, the eradication of all these QAnon and Stop the Steal and all these other misinformation accounts mm. across all these platforms. Mm. It wasn't just Trump. It was a bunch of other people yeah, yeah. <laughs> who lost their who lost their accounts and promptly moved to Parler or to um, Telegram or to Gab, and they're reconstituting themselves there. There um, and uh, now organizing new plans in these sort of darker corners. And it actually does make it harder for the people who are monitoring them to do so when they go off into these dark quarters. It was very easy to monitor their plans, but they were all on Facebook. 
you know? So they're like a blob of mercury. You put your blunt instrument thumb down on it and it just squeezes out to other places, yeah. you know? And uh, then sort of after a while reconstitutes itself. Mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so I don't think that, I don't think, I mean, it's, it's a useful tool, but I don't think it's uh, really, I think it's just the beginning. In order to actually deal with the the larger problem, we have to take it seriously on a broad basis. And it has to be, and again, there has to be enforcement of the law. Um, when they're, share, like I say, they're, the place that they're sharing these bomb-making plans is on Telegram, you know, and... <laughs> Um, when that happens, you know, th that's where law enforcement should be acting. But we, so, so I think that there's really a tendency to just go, oh, well, that'll solve the problem, get rid of Donald Trump, and poof, all the misinformation goes away. But it doesn't. It just goes to darker corners and continues, you know, a much quieter drumbeat. But it continues to spread, and more importantly, to organize. And one of the other things that happens in these darker corners is that they become much more radical. Uh, since they, they don't have the sort of constraints that are imposed by, you know, being in a larger mainstream platform, they're free to just talk, not only free to talk as crazy as they want and extreme as they want, there's actually develops a sort of competition among themselves to see who can out crazy the other. And so they become really, really spun up into extreme radicalism in the process. Yeah, yeah, no, I've seen that with a lot of debates on choice that people do seem to be a bit of a competition of each other to sort of yeah. outshock each other or whatever. But it's, uh, yeah, oh my goodness. Well, David, thank you so much for all that. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Oh, no, just uh, I think I'm going to uh, Wednesday night yeah. make myself a nice martini and maybe get. <laughs> We'll buy a cigar or something. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> just kick my feet up and go, because I can tell you the night that Donald Trump won was uh, the opposite of that. <laughs> you know, I I could just I, I actually just saw all this coming down the road at us, and everything that I feared would happen has come mm. true. Mm. Uh, almost everything, but uh, hasn't gotten as bad as I really feared that it might. But mm. uh, but. Uh, Give them some more time. I mean, these guys are going to keep working on it, and we're going to have at least four more years of it. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, I dread to think if Trump had won the election, I dread to think where we would be in four years' time. So, I'd, yeah. Uh, I, I would be in New Zealand. <laughs> well, God, honestly, once the COVID, once COVID's over, I think we'd all want to be in New Zealand. But, um, I mean, the only country seems to have handled pretty much everything so well. I would like to be in New Zealand just because I think it's an incredibly beautiful place and I'd yeah. love to be there. But, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it's uh, of all the countries I've visited over the last uh, ten years, uh, I would say that it's it, what struck me is that it's its social contract really, yeah. really, really pretty intact. Unlike certainly unlike the United States. Yeah, so. yeah. No, it's sad. I mean, there's a lot of things we could learn from New Zealand. It, it, sorry, just my mischievous sense of humour. Um, I don't know if you remember the book uh, Generation X. They have a chapter called "And New Zealand Gets Nuked Too." <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, dear. New Zealand has been a pipe dream for people for many years. I think they were all in New Zealand when they yeah. were dying on the beach. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> 
there we go. David, thank you so much for everything. Um, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Two good places. Of course, I have a pretty, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So just yeah. go find me on Twitter, uh, N E I W E R T. And, um, also at Daily Coast, which is where I I write five days a week. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of their staff writers, and they've been great. They're a terrific platform for me. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for joining me, Stane. It's great to catch up with you again. My pleasure, Chris. Hey, you take care and stay healthy and safe and, and uh, your family too. Thank you. Likewise, likewise. for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.